you know, preaching can be hazardous work because when you preach, oftentimes uh, what you mean to say and what I hope you hear don't always match up. And so people walk away burdened or troubled when I mean to encourage them and those that I mean to perhaps admonish walk away kind of happy and untouched. <clears throat> and so I've been praying specifically with this sermon because of its, uh, the intensity of it. I've been praying for you out of um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, where Paul encourages the church to admonish the idle, to encourage the faint-hearted, and to help the weak, and to be patient with all. In other words, we're all at different places. I mean, some of us need to be admonished. Some of us just need to be encouraged. And others just need to be helped. So that's been my prayer that that might be for you today. You know, last week we looked at Jesus entering Jerusalem, and he was doing it to disclose himself as a king. It was calculated, it was intentional. He had been previously somewhat secretive about his glory. He is unveiling himself, and he came as a promised king, and he came as a humble king, and he came as a king that was coming to serve. That was last week. Well, this week, Jesus, as this king, is exercising his royal responsibility, and he's going to go into the temple, and he's going to bring about an exposure of false sin. He's not just going to expose it, he's going to condemn it. And yet, at the same time, we're going to see him extend this great mercy to the broken and to the weak. It's really a a sermon of contrast that kind of answers the question, what's false worship look like? And, and what's true worship look like? And my prayer is that you'll help me either admonish you for that part of your life, which perhaps has the, has the markings of false worship, or perhaps you'll be encouraged in the marks that you see of God's Spirit cultivating in you true worship. So turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 21. I'm going to read 12 to 22, Matthew chapter 21, 12 through 22. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables and the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it's written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. In the morning he was returning to the city, became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it'll happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you ask in faith. 
Okay, there's a lot there. Um, so, so the first thing I think we see is this kind of um, a, a portrait of false religion. You, you see the scene, Jesus enters the temple. He enters the te- Let me just stop there for a minute, because I, I want to draw you to understand the temple in a deeper way that's going to hopefully explain the passage more. When you think about the temple in Jerusalem, you're thinking about the centerpiece of the life of Israel. It was the centerpiece of life. I mean, all of life surrounded the temple. It was a symbol of national pride and identity. It was huge. It was the place, but it was more than just the center of activity. It was the place that God had chosen to put his name that he would meet with his people. It was a place where the presence of God was, was localized. It was a sacred spot, a holy spot. And the people would come and worship God. They'd seek God. They'd pray to God. Now, this isn't the first time that God's presence is being shared with his people. If you go back all the way to Genesis 2, you really see the first temple, if you will. That is the sanctuary. God planted the garden and he put the man and the woman in it and they fellowshiped together. It was the place where they could enjoy the very presence of God. It was beautiful. It was paradise. There's no death, disease, decay. There's no deformity. I mean, it was beautiful. It was paradise in every way. Contentment, joy, satisfaction. I mean, absolute joy being with God and harmony with one another. So that's what you saw. That's God's intention. His intention is to dwell with us and to just pour his presence on us that we would be overjoyed. Now, you know the story, chapter 3 comes, and what happens? Well, the man and the woman, they don't want to live under his rule. They want to build their lives on something different. And so they rebel against God. And what happens? What's the result? Well, the result is they're separated from what? The presence of God. At the end of chapter 3 in Genesis, you see the flaming sword. They can't come back in. And what comes from that? Well, disharmony, disorder, and death. Isn't that our life? I mean, isn't that the long trail of history that we have in human history? Don't we have disharmony? Don't we have disorder in our life? Don't we all face death? Isn't that the kind? Isn't that for now? People want to look for different. They want help. I mean, they do. The question is, of course, how do we get back into the garden? How do we get back in the presence of God? And you see men and women across the board trying to do it. They do it through either, well, I'm going to worship God in creation. Well, that's just animism. God isn't in creation. He created creation. But he didn't. He's not in it. Or you see it in all kinds of different means and methods of trying to find meaning in life. They want something more than they have. Well, God thankfully gave a promise that he would send a Savior. But he also gave the promise that he would send his presence. Now you see this as you move through the pages of the Old Testament. You see the tabernacle. God wants to dwell with his people, and so he has a tabernacle created so that going through the 40 years of wandering, God would still be with his people. It was like a, one author said, it's like a garden remixed. It's not the same, but it's a picture of it. It's a type of it. And then, of course, you see the Israelites, they move into the promised land, and what does God tell them to do? Build a temple. And the temple would be where God would have put his name He would meet his people. He would bring order and harmony and joy and reconciliation back into their lives. They would be reconciled to God through the sacrificial system. 
that they would be able to approach God. If you were to read 1 Kings chapter 8, 22 forward, you'll see Solomon in his prayer of dedication. He keeps saying, and you will put your name here, and we will approach you here, and you will hear our prayers here. So the temple was the place outside of Eden that God was closest to his people. They could experience his presence. This is why hundreds of thousands, even millions, would come to Jerusalem. Why? To meet with God at the temple. That was the point. God moving toward us, wanting to be with us. It's a glorious grace of God to want to do that. So that's the temple. So now Jesus comes to the scene. And he comes to this temple, and what's he do? Well, he enters in Jerusalem, he goes right into the temple, which is the court of Gentiles, would be the biggest area around the temple, many precincts in the temple. And everybody had to walk through the court of Gentiles, and the court of Gentiles was an area in the temple where the non-Jew could go and find God. It was where the non-Jew could go and meet with God and find the presence of God, be drawn to understand God. And so what does Jesus find there? Well, he finds it's a stinking zoo. I mean, it's a bazaar. It's pigeons and animals and money-changing tables. Now, before we just throw them out, let me explain their presence there. If you were a traveler and you were coming from 50 miles away, it was difficult to bring a sacrifice to offer. And so you would take your money and you would buy an animal there and then offer that unto God. Or the money-changing tables, what are they doing there? Well, if you came from an area that had Roman coinage or Greek coinage, they were stamped with pagan uh, images, they couldn't be used in the temple, and so you'd have to exchange your money to get a shekel and to pay a tax, which kept up the ministry of the Levites. So, so there, was a, there was a necessary role for them. But Jesus is dealing with where they are first, right? They're in the temple. So, I mean, we talked about the numbers last week. If you have two million pilgrims come, a quarter million, or Josephus records, 288,000 lambs were slaughtered one year. I mean, can you imagine the distraction, the, just the disorderedness, just the smells? How would you be able to really enjoy the presence of God among such clatter and commercial transactions taking place? But it was more than that. Early Jewish literature actually says that oftentimes they charged exorbitant rates for the animals, up to 600% over what they should have paid. The pigeon was the sacrificial um, animal for the poorest of the poor, and they would charge, in equivalent terms, instead of 50 cents, it'd be $6. It was huge, huge upcharge, right? The scales were imbalanced. The animals were blemished. I mean, it's kind of like this captive audience. You know, why do we pay $8 for a box of popcorn at the movie theater? Well, you can't get popcorn anywhere else, can you? And do you pay it? You absolutely pay it. And the issue is that, that they were taking advantage. And this house of meeting with the, with the presence of God is now turned into a bazaar. So does it now make a little more sense for him to go in there and start turning over tables and start letting pigeons? In fact, Jesus, in John chapter 2, the, when he began ministry, he also cleared out the temple. And then he used a cord of whips. Can you imagine the flurry of activity? He's just dumping tables. And coins are hitting the ground and going everywhere. Pigeons are getting loose. Profit is being lost by these people. So he's really stirring up quite a... He's not abusing people. He's stopping the abuse of the temple. And he says, and he gives justification for everybody. He says, this is my house. That Jesus is claiming it's my house. He's not saying this is God's house. Do you notice that? 
This is my house. My house will be a house of prayer. And what he's doing here is he's referencing Isaiah 56, 7. Isaiah 56 is this look down into the future where God is saying, my house will be a house of prayer. Now, the word prayer there is kind of a collective term. It isn't just that the only thing you can do in the temple is pray. Prayer is a collective term meaning prayer, singing, worship, the whole thing. And he's saying, my house is going to be a house of prayer. And in Isaiah 56, it's looking down the road and it's saying that one day my house, the temple, will be a place where the foreigner, the lame, the blind, everybody will come. The nations will stream and we will all worship and enjoy God. And so Jesus is rebuking them, turning over these tables, saying, my house will be a house of prayer. But notice what else he says. He says, you've made it into a den of thieves or den of robbers. What Jesus is doing there is he's quoting from Jeremiah 7. This is Jeremiah's temple sermon, his temple sermon, where he is prophesying the destruction of the temple because the people were coming. And he says this in Jeremiah 7, he says, you come with your idolatries, you come with your adulteries, you come with your maltreatment of the poor, you come with your hypocrisies, and because you come to my temple, you think that I hear you. And you come expecting me to protect and promote you though your hearts are far from me. So he's condemning them for their false worship. He's really saying you're thieving from God the glory to his name by the way you're engaging in worship. Now let me just stop here for a minute because that's a load. It really is. You can see Jesus brimming over with a righteous anger. And we, it makes sense to us. But let's just take a step back and ask about ourselves. You know, what would Jesus say about us in our worship? I mean, he can see our hearts. What would he say about what we bring into worship? How would he view it? I mean, do you come with, with an attitude of joy and gratitude over the life he gives you, the work of Christ on your behalf? Do you have a gratitude when you come? Or is it more out of duty, or is it more out of obligation? I mean, some of us, I think, for when we think worship, we think, well, the ceremonies, the attendance of church. Is that how we view it? Is it kind of a, a mechanical regularity that we just do without engaging our mind on the words that we sing or the, or the words that are preached? Now, I know in the questions I'm going to be asking you, it's not an either-or, there's a continuum here. I'm asking you to place yourself on. When you come to worship, do you come with confession and do you come with reverence? You know, do you consider the holiness of God? And when you think about God's glory and how he's demonstrated it to us in Christ, does it move you not to despair, but to just confess your sin that you might be forgiven through the hope that's given to us in the gospel? Or do you kind of come ambivalent to the week that you've just lived? Monday through Saturday hasn't really troubled you too much. Perhaps you've come in with a measure of anger or unresolved conflict or self-centered attitudes. How do you come? Or do you come with a transcendent and kind of an attitude of awe that we're actually coming together, worshiping the one who's created all things and gives us breath and life right now? And, and we come in sometimes with a, with a degree of, I don't know, kind of arrogance. You know, not kind of an awe that we think we ought to have when you think about the creator of the universe. 
Perhaps you come in wanting to be informed or to learn something new, or I hope there's something entertaining, as opposed to, no, I want to come and get my heart right before God. Have you thought about worship being such that it could be a kind of robbery? You know, Mark 7 warns us about that John read it from Isaiah. Jesus quotes Isaiah 29 to the Pharisees in Mark 7 when he says, yeah, your lips honor me, no doubt, but your hearts are far from me. Is there truly a spirit of, of I want to worship God, have a love for God? It's a, it's a good check, you know? It's a good time to just stop and say, where am I on this? Because Jesus goes on. So he just doesn't expose false religion there, you know, where you see the distance between the head and the heart. But he also condemns it. Notice what he does with this fig tree. You know, this is kind of a startling little passage. You know, Jesus isn't, you don't find Jesus zapping trees and animals and people. You don't see a miracle that ends in destruction. You always see miracles of healing and saving. But this miracle is showing something different. It causes people a struggle to understand it. So I want to try to explain it to you. So he, he leaves that night after cleaning house, cleaning his house, goes out to Beth, and he comes back in the morning, he's hungry, he sees a fig tree, and the fig tree's in full leaf. Now that's important. For fig trees, and I don't know that many of us know this, I didn't know this, but with a fig tree, when it's in leaf, there's always an initial fruit. Now there's later fruit that comes in the season, and it's a bigger, and it's a sweeter fruit. But the unique thing about a fig tree is when it leafs out, there's an immediate fruit with it. So as soon as you see a fig tree, it has leaves, you know that you should be able to get something off that to eat. Jesus goes up, there's nothing on the tree. And so he curses it. So what's, what's the story here? Is he just angry? And Carol, I think, has a, has a sign on our kitchen that says, please forgive me, I'm hungry. You know, so that's kind of the, when we're hungry, we get angry. But there's much more going on than that. There's much more. What Jesus is doing is, is, is this fig tree, as a symbol now, as a symbol, was advertising fruitfulness, and yet there was no life on it. There was no life to be had on it. There was no fruit on it. Now, the fig tree is a symbol of Israel, always been a symbol of Israel in the Old Testament. And so he's saying to Israel, he says, you look like you have life with all your religious attitudes, with all your religious props, with all your activities, but you have no life. You're deceiving because you have no life in you. And so this is a form of God bringing judgment upon the nation of Israel. It's a picture of what's going to happen. We're going to see this in chapter 24 in Matthew when he, can, when he prophesies that the temple will be destroyed. He says, not one stone will be left upon another. But he's also showing us a picture of the judgment of God upon the lives of the professing people that have no fruit. So those of the people who are professing faithfulness in God that have no fruit, this is a picture of the condemnation the judgment that will come. Now, I know people laugh at judgment. Tertullian was a great third century church father, and he said this. This is interesting to me. Okay, we're back pushing now 1,900 years, and here's what he says. We get ourselves laughed at for proclaiming that God will one day judge the world. They were even laughed at that. You know, when you speak about the judgment of God, and ah, where is this, where is this coming? We kind of laugh about it. Well, they even laughed, and they'll always laugh about judgment, but there's a clear warning here. And again, I just want to stop and pause, and let's take inventory of our own life. What fruit do you see in your life? 
What fruits of the Spirit of peace and patience and joy, long-suffering? Where do you see, again, I'm giving you a continuum now. It's never a 10 or a 0. It's, it's somewhere. I'm asking you to assess yourself. Where do you see the fruit of obedience? Where you read the scriptures, you understand them, and you say, I've got to alter my life because God is so good. He's, asked, he's commanded me to do this, and this will lead me to greater joy. And so I'm going to change my life accordingly. Or where's the fruit of good works? The fruit that will, that will naturally come out through your sacrifice, through your forgiveness, through your acts of kindness. You know, many of you, a lot of you actually are studying in Colossians chapter 1 right now. And you remember the verse in verse um, 6. He says, you heard the word of truth, the gospel. So he's talking to the people of Colossians. He says, you've heard the word of truth, the gospel. It has come to you. As indeed in the whole world, it's bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God and truth. The implication is when you understand the grace of God and truth, fruit's going to begin coming out. It's not all perfect fruit. Much of it's mixed. But there's fruit that's being born. And it's increasing. Where do you see that? Do you see an increased desire to forgive? Do you see an increased desire to repent when you sin? Do you initiate repentance in your own life? Or do you have to be challenged by somebody and then you say, uncle, yes, please forgive me. Where do you see it in sacrifice with your money? Where do you see it in sacrifice with your time? Is there fruit being born? We want to assess ourselves on this side of judgment. You know, J.C. Ryle was a a great Anglican minister, a British man in the middle of the um, 19th century. And here's how he encouraged his church. And these are words from a pastor who loves his church, but they have, a, they have a note of warning to them. And here's what he says. He says, Is not every fruitless professor of Christianity in dreadful danger of becoming a withered tree? There can be no doubt about it. So long as a man is content with the leaves of religion, with the name to live while he is dead, a form of godliness without power, so long his soul is in great peril. So long as he is satisfied with going to church or chapel and receiving the Lord's Supper and being called a Christian, while his heart is not changed and his sins not forsaken, so long he is daily provoking God to cut him off without remedy. Fruit, the fruit of the Spirit, is the only sure proof that we are savingly united to Christ and in the way to heaven. May this sink down into our hearts and never be forgotten. See, faith is best seen in fruit. Yes, we have to understand the right things about God, no doubt. But the knowledge of God in the heart of a man or woman that's been born again, regenerated, will bear fruit, some measure of fruit. Now, I want to just put a caveat in here. This, this kind of harshness or strength of word is not for the sinner. If you're not a Christian here, you're looking at the faith, you're, you're trying to wrestle with meaning of life and This isn't for you. This isn't being spoken to you. You notice that Jesus is not criticizing the culture here. He's not taking the culture to task. He's surely not taking the Roman government to task. He's speaking to us, the professing community. He's speaking to the church. Jesus saves his harshest words for us, to call us to be self-confrontational, to be self-critical, to be self-analytical, not too much. You can get buried in despair when you 
kind of go into a navel-gazing phase. But, you know, Paul gives us the same encouragement in 2 Corinthians 13. He says, test yourselves and see if you're in the faith. The whole thing with the take the log out before you take the splinter out, the same idea, you know, self-confrontation. So so I want to ask us to do that, that Jesus is exposing exposing false religion, and, and these words will help us expose it in our own soul. You know, what Nick and I were talking in the, um, about this text, and he raised the question, would society be so hard on us if we were first diligent to exercise ourselves of what might be hypocritical? hypocritical. In fact, you kind of see that it's kind of sympathetic to the criticism of hypocrisy when Jesus levels it first against us. Now, this doesn't leave us in despair. We're thankful As a Christian, we're thankful that we have the gospel. These things are exposed. And what do we do? We we surely don't run from them. We don't want to deny them. We want to embrace them at the truth that they apply to us and, and look to the cross and say, thank you. When Jesus said, it's finished, this is what he was talking about. I've died for this. And so we move from despair to delight in how he has saved us from this. Okay, so this is the exposure and the condemnation of false religion. That's what false religion is. It's seen in hypocrisy. It's seen in a head and a heart separation. It's seen in a lack of fruitless or uh, a lack of fruit. Okay, let's go to the other side, because Jesus wants to restore true religion, and we have a picture of it here. Now you know you almost miss it in verse fourteen. You kind of read through the passage, and it's just tucked in there in a bigger story, and you kind of move right beyond it. But it talks about this idea of in fourteen. It says the blind and the lame came to him in the temple. And he healed them. This is so much true of Scripture. So many times the nuggets are just right in there. If you're not reading slowly, you just pass right over them. You don't even pick them up. But this is a beautiful nugget because it shows how Jesus came to restore the temple. Jesus, remember, he throws out the trans, he throws out the businessmen, he throws out all the folks that are making money in the temple. And who comes to him but the blind and the lame? He throws out the abusers and he brings in the abused. He brings them to himself. Jesus calls the blind and the lame. And what do they say to him? They say, Hosanna. Remember what that word means? It means save us. Listen, their physical maladies made them aware of their spiritual need. They knew they needed to be saved. And so they had no, they had no embarrassment to say, save us. And they call him son of David. Now remember, son of David is a reference to 2 Samuel 7, 13 and 14. It's a key passage of Scripture where God promises David he'll have a son and this son will be the Messiah and he'll have an eternal government that will rule over all things for all time. So it's a big promise that we've been waiting for for God. So them calling him son of David means that they have faith. He's the Messiah sent from God to deliver and they're reaching out to him by faith. Perfect picture. I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm broken. Look at my body. This is not the way the world's supposed to be. God, Save me through your Messiah. And he healed them. You notice Jesus' healings are always confirming some spiritual healing that takes place. So it's not just that the blind saw and the lame walked, but they were healed of their sin. And this was the work of a Messiah. In Isaiah 53, or sorry, Isaiah 35, he says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame shall Leap like a deer in the tongue of the mute, sing for joy. Jesus is fulfilling this. He's doing what the Messiah would do. But notice the religious leaders, they're indignant. 
They said, do you hear what these kids are saying to you? You know, as if they know the implications of being called son of David. Do you hear what they're saying? Rebuke them. And Jesus says, yeah, yeah, I hear. And here's what Jesus does. He quotes Psalm 8. Psalm 8, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. He says, out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have ordained praise. Now, Psalm 8 was about even the children are going to look at the great works of God and praise him forever. Jesus takes that, and now the kids are going to praise Jesus for the new work of creation that he's doing in himself. Jesus is standing in the place of God, saying, now I'm doing a great work. And he's receiving praise, and the Pharisees know it. And that's why we're going to have a major confrontation next week when they go after Jesus for making this claim. So what do we learn about true worship from this? We've looked at false worship. What about true worship? Well, I think the blind and the lame have a couple things to teach us here. Just two things for you to think about. The blind and the lame will teach us that true worship will flourish from an attitude of humility and honesty about ourselves. They had no allusions to grandeur. They didn't. They knew. The blind and the lame, they knew they had nothing to offer. They were excluded from the worship. They were excluded from much of the life of Israel. They knew they didn't have much to offer. They were the ones that were worshiping because they knew, they understood the nature of their sin and their brokenness. You know, don't you find it interesting in Scripture that the greatest worshipers seem to come from the greatest trouble? You know, you have Zacchaeus, for example, his life was, was just wrapped up in thievery as a tax collector. And yet when he comes to the knowledge of his sin and he sees the forgiveness of a Savior, he's throwing away half his kingdom. He is excited to be a son of Abraham at that point. Or what about the woman in Luke 7, the prostitute? She's been with men for year after year after year, and she receives the forgiveness of God. And what does it result in? She's weeping on his feet with her tears. She's drying his feet with her hair, rejoicing over the salvation that she's been given. I mean, it's always the broken and the weak that really understand they're broken and they're weak. They just rejoice. And this is why Jesus will say next week to the Pharisees, tax collectors and prostitutes are getting into the kingdom ahead of you. Why? They know they need it. One of the other favorite quotes of mine from C.S. Lewis is when he says this. He says, prostitutes are in no danger of finding their present life so satisfactory that they cannot turn to God. The proud, the avaricious, the self-righteous, they're in that danger. It is amazing. Whenever I come to a, a text like this, I find immediate conviction personally. Because I look at us, we're so cleaned up, we're not messed up, we have things together, and yet oftentimes, out of the group that is most intelligent and most wise, I think it's us who run the risk most of missing the glory of what the gospel is actually teaching. It, it, it's, it's a sense of, well, no, I'm cleaned up now. I'm not so messed up as I was. I'm better than I was, and yet I find my worship to sometimes be less significant than when I was more messed up. And, but when Dr. Jones was preaching back in Matthew chapter 9, remember he preached on that passage where Jesus looks at the hapless and the harried, and he has compassion on them. We want to take them and clean them up real fast, get them like us. 
And yet Jesus seems to be drawn to the lame and the blind and the beggar and the prostitute and the tax collector and the guy that can't beat himself out of a paper bag. He seems to be drawn to. And I just was, I guess it's just a note of personal reflection. I just was taken up by that, kind of challenged by it. You know, Martin Lloyd-Jones, um, uh, we're reading on staff a book, um, a biography by Ian Murray on Martin Lloyd-Jones, British pastor in the 20th century. And uh, he came to this realization, um, so he was a doctor first, a medical doctor, and in the higher echelons of, in London, dealing with prime ministers and dealing with um, upper echelon of parliament, and so he really saw the nicer side of life. And uh, when he was, before he was converted, he speaks to an event that was uh, seminal in terms of his conversion. And he talked about seeing, uh, doing um, medical practice in London, in, in Islington, and he saw much of the darkness of life. And he was just overwhelmed with the sin and the destructive nature of human capacity. And in his mind, he was thinking, well, more education, better environment, they'll do better if you pull them out of that, you help them. Kind of a typical um, you know, philosophy held by many people. But then he started working with a lot of these patients uh, in this uh, hospital in St. Bartholomew's uh, that were of a much higher order, much higher intelligence, uh, much better life station. And he found the problems to be the same. And then, and then his, his boss asked him to kind of uh, classify all these different cases. And he found all these cases kind of indicating that these people in the rich and upper echelon, they've got the same problems. And it brought him to understand, in fact, Here's what he kind of came to as a, a point of conclusion. There's a growing recognition of his own sinfulness. He said this, he says, My trouble was not only that I did things that were wrong, but that I myself was wrong at the very center of my being. In other words, he understood the desires of the heart give way to behavior, whether you're in a high station of life or a lower station of life. And his point was this, we're all broken. We, we all need to recognize, to be honest with ourselves. That's where worship comes out of. If you're not a Christian here, this is where it begins. This is where the Christian life begins, is a, a recognition of my brokenness before God that's not just reformable on the outside. You know, as Lloyd-Jones would say, the gospel doesn't make men better, it makes men new. It changes us from the inside. That's the mark of Christianity. And if you're a Christian here, there's still plenty to remind you of your need to walk in humility before God. To be thinking about what he's drawn you from. Even though you've, you've been changed from glory to glory, we rejoice in that. But let's not forget that place from which we've come, that we can just be thankful. It will cause our worship to flourish. But secondly, I would say this, that true worship flourishes when it's treasuring Christ. When it's centered on Christ, you see that the blind and the lame, they valued Christ, that he had come to save them. They saw that he had come, that God himself was coming to them to save them. You know, in 1 Peter, he says um, that Christ died once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. That's what he's done. Jesus has come from God to save them, and he was going to save them. We don't see it here in the text. We're going to see it at the end of the week. He saves them through the cross, through his own death 
and resurrection is how he will save us, by taking upon himself our sins, by dying under God's just wrath, and then being brought to life for uh, our justification. That's the promise. But I want you to see that they saw he came. You know, let me go back to that. Eden, God's present with us. We fall in sin. The tabernacle, God moves closer to us. And then the temple is that permanent place where God would put his name and we could go and see God, but from a distance, right? Only the, only the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies one time a year. But God's presence came to us in Christ. So when they came to him, they realized this is the presence of God coming. This is the nature of the incarnation. You know, in Matthew 1, when Joseph was told, you will give him the name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus knew he was the temple fulfilled right he says that in the beginning was the word the word was with god the word was god in verse 14 of chapter 1 in john he says and the word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us jesus is god's presence coming to save to draw us back to god i mean it's incredible jesus saw himself jesus was even accused at his trial of saying you t- i'll tear the temple down and rebuild it in three days And they said, and of course his disciples interpret that in John 20, he was speaking of his own body. He's the temple now. And and they treasured Christ. So so worship flourishes out of Christ has come from God to bring us back through the flaming swords to bring us back to God by his own death and resurrection. And if our worship isn't centered on Jesus being the rescuer who has come from God, brought the very presence of God in flesh, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, to give us full rights as children. If we don't see that, our worship will never flourish. But then thirdly, the third truth about a flourishing worship is it takes place as we gather together in the church. This is really essential. Let me carry on the, the theology of Jesus. When Jesus said that he is God with us, and then he says to his disciples... He says, I must go away. Now you can see why they're bothered by that, right? This is the presence of God in human flesh with us. He says, well, I'm going to send another comforter, the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God now dwells within us, the believer. Right? Paul says, don't you know that you're God's temple and that God's Spirit lives in you? In other words, it isn't like we all have a little piece of the Spirit in us, so we're a little temple moving around. He's speaking collectively to the church. When you gather together, you are God's temple. Yes, you do have the Spirit of God dwelling within you individually, leading you from glory to glory, but it's when we come together that we're actually the visible temple to the world. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 16, you are the living temple of God. Listen, he says, you are the living temple of God. As God said, I'll make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I'll be their God, and they shall be my people. When we gather together, We are the ones displaying the wisdom of God. Now, through the way we pray, through the way that we serve, through the way that we sacrifice, all the works that come out of us as a collective body are now the temple displaying the presence of God. We are now displaying the presence of God to the world. It was the tabernacle. It was the temple. It was Christ. Now it's us. You, me, together. We are the temple of God. I mean, that is mind-bending to me. I mean, we don't, we don't find God in nature. God is present among his people here with us together. Even though we're clunky and awkward at times, 
God has chosen in his own humble way to display his glory through us, the gathered community. That's why the relationships, the love that we have for one another, the service that we do together is all redounding to display his presence to the world. And it's all pointing to that one day when we'll be taken up with the Father. And in Revelation 21, what does it say? That he will dwell with us and we will dwell with him. In verse 3, it's back to the garden. So we're in that last stage before we're taken up, before being with God that we now are displaying. And so the worship of God is enjoyed and flourishes as his people together, as we worship together, sing together, serve one another. So so true worship is going to be seen, born out of a heart of humility, treasuring Christ gathered together as a community. So I can't emphasize more the importance of our of our walking out life together, not just when cultural troubles or physical troubles come to us, but just week in and week out, loving God together, learning about God together, being transformed together. So we see a picture of false worship, and we see the emptiness of it and the judgment that it will have, and we see the picture of the presence of God mediated through Christ now dwelling among us by his Spirit. So let me pray for us that we would um, yeah, let, let me pray for us that we would be able to rightly inspect our hearts. I would encourage you to, if you would, and as you do, kind of examine your own heart, uh, grab a good friend or a spouse and share with them to some degree of what you find. That way we don't act in an overcritical measure of who we are. I think when I can analyze myself, I can, uh, I have no problem with the deconstruction of that. Um, so, so I would encourage you to draw in a trusted friend, spouse, to walk with you through that. Let me pray for us and then we'll prepare for communion. Father, I do thank you and praise you for your son that has come bringing the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form in Christ. The fullness of your pleasures rested in him as he came to bring your presence to us who could not come to you, but he has come to us. He has sought and found the lost and saved them. Thank you for that. Father, give us, um, give us eyes to see areas of our life that might be worthy of correction. Uh, Father, give us eyes to see the grace that you are bringing to us and the changes that are taking place. May we see them as not not simply the work of our hands, but actually the grace that you have given to us as you change us from glory to glory. Father, I do pray as I have that you would admonish the idol among us, that we would root out hypocrisy and false religion, that you would encourage those that are faint-hearted right now and that are wanting to give up perhaps, frustrated with Christianity, it's not working for them, would you encourage them by your spirit and would you help the weak, those who perhaps cannot even extend a hand to be helped? Uh, would you help them by your spirit and through your church? Father, that you might be glorified here, that we might be a people that do enjoy the very your very presence among us as we gather around your word. And now, Father, as we gather around your table. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.